Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Anders interviews Dr. Tim Kenningham about measuring customer experiences. So, uh, welcome to the Experience Podcast, and I'm very excited to have a special guest uh, that, that is a very good friend of mine. It's Timothy Kenningham. Um, he is a really well-known scholar in, in service research. And uh, uh, Tim, can, can you tell me a bit more about, about yourself? Because uh, I, I, I fear sure. I'll, I'll miss something if I, wow. if I start. Uh, as Anders said, we're very good friends. We've known each other for a very long time. Um, I, uh, most of my career actually was in industry. I worked for 17 years at Ipsos, and you may not know what Ipsos is, but Ipsos is the third largest survey research firm in the world, or market research firm in the world. And I spent the last seven years as the global chief strategy officer of the Ipsos loyalty division, which is basically the CX division, uh, customer experience division, and as a global executive vice president. Uh, and then at some point, I realized that Andrew, Andars, and my wife, Lerzon Axoid, had a much better job, a much more rewarding job. And that was becoming a professor, uh, being a professor, and actually helping uh, raise the next generation of lead business leaders. And I was really intrigued by it. So I switched my career. Uh, I'm now a, a professor at St. John's University in New York City. Uh, still do the same kind of research. I still have an active role uh, in a company called Rockridge Associates, which is a small research firm uh, based out of uh, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we still do a, a lot of CX measurement there. Uh, but throughout that entire uh, span, I spent a lot of time doing scientific research. So that's one of the ways that Andres got to know me is that we were doing lots of scientific research, seeing ourselves at the same conferences, reading each other's work you know, having a mutual admiration society, me admiring him, probably more than him admiring me, but it was all good. And um, anyway, I, it's, this is a space I love. I believe very passionately in customer experience, and I'm very glad that right now uh, the rest of the country or the rest of the world is becoming passionate about it. Because in the end, I think uh, the goal of a business is to actually serve society and make lives better. And customer experience is really the culmination of that. You know, you have to be good to people, be good to one another for it actually to work. Anyway, I don't know if that's what you wanted me to say. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and uh, since you have so much experience in terms of measuring and, and, and uh, you have been in this game so long, um, this podcast is, is going to be one of the more difficult ones uh, in, in that, that uh, it's... Uh, challenging. Um, uh, I'd like to talk more about how to measure customer experience and how to measure what matters in, in customer experience. And, and uh, as we all know, uh, we, we usually talk about five dimensions, maybe there's more, but we talk about cognitive, physical, sensory, emotional, and social dimensions of, of, of customer experience. But um, what would be your take on this? What, what, what should we focus on in, in terms of measuring uh, customer experience? Uh, wow. Okay, that's obviously hard. 
Um, and uh, I agree with you. So, uh, so the definition that Anders is talking about is something that we actually put out, uh, my colleagues and I, and I really need to give credit to Arne de Kaiser, um, who I consider to be the, at least the current academic thought leader in the CX space. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with him. Uh, but in a piece that we had put out, we had defined customer experience as being this uh, cognitive, meaning the, your thought processes, the emotional, the physical, the sensorial and social responses that you have. And that's still not enough because they're marked by temporality, you know, meaning the, how you experience time, the valence, whether it's positive or negative, you know, your uh, connection or your experience and the ordinariness to it. Some things are extraordinary experiences, some things are ordinary experiences. And so when you talk about measuring that, that becomes quite hard because you have so many dimensions, right? The, uh, let me just move here for a second. We recently came out of a piece that actually demonstrated that there's a bunch of additional pieces that are complex in here. We, there's, you have to think about the touch points that you have when you are experiencing uh, your interaction with the firm. And, and that isn't always just when you actually start. There's the pre-purchase point to it, your actual experience, and then you're gonna have a post-purchase evaluative experience. All of that is still part of the experience. And then there are the context it's in. And, and that's really a piece that I think that we'll talk mostly about because I think that, that right now, that's the part that we're not measuring well and, and, uh, uh, and, and benefiting from. So we talk about what you as an individual think, what's the social context? And social context matters a lot. We can think about that. You know, when you say, where do you wanna eat? You know, we all say this, where do I wanna go eat? And frequently you don't go where you want. You know, you have, you have to take the consideration of the group and, you know, we think, okay, also what kind of things are we gonna buy? There's some things that I would love to buy and wear, but people would, you know, if I went out with it wearing them, you, know, I'm, you don't realize this, but I'm a heavy duty kind of Southern rock country kind of guy. And if I was to wear all that stuff all the time, which I would love to wear, you know, the, the cowboy hat, whatever, whatever. Being in New York, people would assume something about me that isn't accurate. So I actually don't do that uh, because I need to present myself a different way for people to take me seriously, which is fine. Also, I just when I teach, believe it or not, when I teach, I wear a suit. And if you knew, and right now I'm, I'm wearing a nice shirt, <laughs> just so you know, I'm not a clothing kind of person. Normally I can wear the same shirt and gym trunks every day. It drives my wife crazy. She's like, hey, what, what, what's going on? I'm like, well, I'm gonna be comfortable. But when I have to present myself, that social context matters. So I know that you're going to experience me differently by how I present myself. We also have a market context and an environmental context. And we'll talk a little bit about the environmental context in just a second. Then all these other pieces that come in, right? 
We talked about ordinariness, the time flow, the valence. But there is also, you know, the level of participation that's demanded of you, right? How much do you have to be involved? These, all of these things come in that make it really hard. Now we come back to that definition, we go, okay, how do I measure customer experience? And the answer is there is no one thing to measure. There's a lot of things to measure. And you know, we have to get a whole a holistic view of the customer to do this well. So, but let's just talk back to the cognitive, emotional, physical, sensorial, and social. And we say, how can you actually use this information? How can you use it? And it's funny because I think one of the best ways I've ever seen it used had, not, had nothing to do with my work at Ipsos or even my own personal work at St. John's. It came from uh, students at St. John's University who did this without my help at all. They had read the papers. <laughs> they had read the scientific papers. They said, and they, they entered this competition, this national advertising competition, and they placed first in the marketing communication part and third place national overall, which was huge, it was a huge competition. And what do they do? They asked themselves some basic questions. They, they used a bunch of, I can't, I can't release the name of the firm, okay? But what do they do? They did a bunch of qualitative interviews and they also did a bunch of watching people use the product. So you watch them. And they said, okay, let's think in terms of the challenges. What are the cognitive challenges that are, that are being experienced here? What are the uh, uh, physical challenges, the sensorial challenges, the emotional challenges, and the social challenges? And they really they went in to the qualitative work they were doing, specifically looking to figure those things out. And they, so for the, for the cognitive challenges, they were asking, what are people thinking? What are the people actually thinking? Oh, well, in this case, they questioned the sincerity of the messaging, basically. The physical, they asked themselves, how are people actually interacting? Sensorial, they said, well, what do people actually say they experience? What do they actually experience? What do they love about the product? What do they hate about the product? What do they kind of just, yeah, I don't think twice about it, but the company seems to think it's important and they're not connecting on. Emotionally, how do people feel, right? You know, are they delighted to be a part of this? And social, how are they sharing this, you know, this experience? Are they sharing this experience? From that, they basically came up with a different set of solutions. They said, okay, now that I've really gotten myself a sense of how people experience this product, then they asked themselves, what am I going to do to solve the challenge. And in this case, they were talking about redefining for the cognitive piece, redefine that experience so that you know, we're actually aligning with what they feel, show it, embrace the sensory piece, the emotional piece, prove it. And finally, make it easy to share it. I really found that really remarkable because I was looking at this going, I wish I could share what the company did, but the company 
the company actually wanted to use this information. And it had more detail than this, right? How they got there, all the qualitative pieces. But I think the first piece in terms of actually measuring customer experience is to actually get a sense of the totality of it and ask these basic questions. What do people think? How do they interact? What are they actually experiencing? How do they feel? And how do they share? If we, if we started there, it would open up a lot of information on what the solutions need to be. And so, you know, I got to hand it to them because they were, they were extraordinarily creative. And obviously they did a, a, a tremendous job in terms of presenting that information to come in third place nationally and first place in marketing. Now, I think the other piece that we, we don't do a good job of is in understanding how context impacts the experience. Because if, until we get that part right, we're gonna always miss a major portion of our business. And so an example that I use with my students is, you know, I traveled a lot for Ipsos. And so I'd be all over the world. And I would be traveling in the wintertime frequently, which is never a good, fun time. Or you can be traveling during hurricane season, also not a good flying time. So I would be coming home and frequently I would come up and I would look up at the uh, flight schedules and everything, every plane that was going anywhere near where I wanted to be was canceled, right? So just imagine that's your experience, all right? So the question is, you know, I, ca I can't drive home, particularly when I'm overseas. I've already made my schedule for me to leave. The first thing is, what do I need? And what I need, you know, what am I thinking? Well, I'm thinking, damn, I'm screwed, right? This is not a good day. Life isn't gonna work for me. And so that's the first panicky thing you feel. And then as I, as I say to my students, what kind of businesses have what you need at this moment? What kind of business have what you need at this moment? And chances are the thing you want is a place you're going to be able to sleep, be comfortable, be safe, and that'll make it easy for you to get back to the airport when those flights aren't canceled anymore and you can continue your journey to where you really wanna be. Okay, let's think about that for a second. All right, I need a hotel. We've all stayed at hotels or, or an Airbnb or whatever, right? Let's think about a vacation we took. Plan a vacation. First thing is, what did you want from your what did you want from the facility, the hotel you were going to stay at when you were planning your vacation? Probably you had a whole lot of amenities that you wanted, and you thought about how that experience should be, right? what they're gonna serve you, what you're gonna do. And guess what? That's in all the marketing brochures because that's what they're selling you. But when you're in an airport and all the flights are canceled, is that really the thing you're looking for? You're looking for all the amenities? Are you, is that, is that the deciding factor? Does that, do, do those things even come into play? Outside of safety and cleanliness, we probably don't have a whole lot of overlap anymore. The problem we have is 
that we as marketers tend to market to what we consider our ideal or ordinary situation. And that context is great, but it misses a huge portion of people that are in need of your service for a very different reason and wanting very, you know, they, they, they're not gonna be nearly as price sensitive either, right? I need a hotel. I need it right now. I don't need the basket of fruit in the room. I don't need the view of the ocean. I don't need concierge service. I agree, and that, that's why we sort of uh, try to emphasize doing this persona so you can actually try. I mean, even if you don't get to individual customers, you at least get to characteristics of customers that, that uh, you're serving. So you're not exactly. Uh, you're, you're exactly right, Anders. But the, the point I want to get to here is you're a customer. You're now, you're now a Let's say you work at the hotel. You're the marketing department at the hotel. You have a customer that needs something very different. Yeah. Now you have to figure out how to reach them. What kind of data actually matters now? To ma ma that's really important on the customer experience. It's actually, it's all about the pre-purchase data that actually matters now. What is the customer experience before they ever come into your place? How are you gonna reach them? What is, you know, what is that deciding factor? Well, here, the deciding factor is pretty clear. They're stranded. So there's a totally different set of data you need. And you probably don't know this hotel chain, Red Roof Inn, because I think it's a US only chain. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, a chain that's primarily designed for travelers. I don't mean like, like vacation travelers, I mean road travelers, yeah. right? what they do? What do they do? They said, uh, what kind of information matters? Well, I need information on flight cancellations. What are they likely to do in a flight cancellation situation? The first thing they're likely to do once they figure out beyond the panic of, once they figure out I'm not, being, I'm not gonna be able to get home no matter what tricks I play. And then the first thing they do after that is they open up their smartphone and they start to Google for hotels in the area. That's the first thing they're gonna do. Well, if you're Red Roof Inn and you don't have a lot of money, you have to figure out how are you gonna reach those customers? Because you have a hotel probably close to most of these major airports. And so what they did was they said, I need data on flight, cancel on flight cancellations near certain airports to have my, and I'm gonna spend more money to get my ad in front of them when that search happens. You know, and it'll say something that's relative, you know, flight canceled, we have you covered. And it'll appear right on them, you know, and let them know how close it is. And they did that and they had a ridiculous change in the number of customers that came. They had like a 300% increase. It's, it was an insane number. All because they said, I need, to pay attention to the context, and I need to pay attention not just to the experience that they have coming into my facility, that still has to be great, but they're coming here for a different reason, right? They need a rest, they need a secure place, they need a way to get back to the airport. But if it was a pre-purchase setup part that we talked about, but we too 
frequently ignore. And I thought, well, that was brilliant. And they thought the same thing. And then they realized, hey, we have to take this context thing into uh, uh, a serious consideration for other travel here. We're a roadside hotel for most people in the United States. People are driving along the highway and they stop when they get tired and they stay at my hotel. That's a big percentage of their customers. What causes them to do that? What causes them to do that? <laughs> it turns out that what causes people on the freeway to say, I'm done, I need a room, is they'll be driving and at some point traffic starts to happen and they're tired and they don't want to have an accident that ruins their lives and definitely ruins their trip, right? But it could even kill them. And they said, that is what's driving people staying. They actually did the research to figure that out. And then they said, what kind of information do I need to be collecting? What type of information do I need to be collecting? And they realized that, and that information's available. When you go on uh, Waze or Google Maps or whatever, all that information's actually aggregated and you can buy information on traffic patterns near your property, believe it or not. And they did that. And what they looked for were the same issues. Once they started seeing congestion patterns, they treated it the same way as canceled flights. Need a place to rest? Right here. They could use the geolocation of your phone to know you were near the hotel, pay extra so they could target to you and get that, that ad, ad to you right then because they understood the context you were in, how you were feeling, what you needed, and they would have it ready for you. And they had a 180% increase in phone calls and a 400% conversion rate increase which resulted in a 225% increase in bookings just from knowing traffic patterns and, are, and targeting the right customers at the time they needed them because they stayed in context. So I don't know, Anders, if that answers your question, but at least it gives some sense of how, how we need to change our thought process in terms of customer experience. I, I think it, it does, and, and uh, what what you're saying is that that, and what we've what, what we're emphasizing when it comes to customer experience is is that you you need more information about your customers and and, and uh, more information about the context you're you're acting in and and, and more information about sequences of, of occurrences uh, and, and more information about profiles or or, or uh, uh, we, we need to stop just focusing on, on mean values, but, but rather look at, at, at uh, the distribution of things and, and, and look at different customer groups. Uh, exactly. And that's actually a huge problem that we have. In, uh, and I would say most research firms have. Because yeah. they get large data sets and then they give you an average for everything. Yeah. How are we doing? Well, unless you're doing great with everybody, that's probably not a good system. Right, and, and it's, it's for exactly the reason Anders is talking about. People have different needs at different times for what, you know, and if you don't actually uh, do good segmentation, life becomes miserable. And you also lose in another way because I'm a huge believer in customer experience, 
But guess who has more high demands than the average person? The person that uses the service all the time. If you're a high business traveler, you demand a lot more from the hotel, you demand a lot more from the airline than a person who just gets on the airline once every two years. It's just a fact. You know when you get on once every two years that you're not making money for the airline in the sense that they live and die by your ticket. You also don't even have enough experience to really know what you can and can't get. But if you're traveling all the time, and you have to make your meetings, and you may even have more than one flight in a day, boy, you expect a lot. And if you have, if you run, but, but that actually represents a relatively small segment of your customers. Okay, but for the hotel chains in the world, all hotel chains, that tiny percentage of frequent business travelers tends to represent 50% or more of your revenue. That's a huge percentage. And if I just run the numbers and I put everybody in together, what ends up happening is I end up happening with most of my team being, uh, most of it being weighted to people who are not regular users of the brand. They have totally different demands. I will never ever give my most valuable customers what they want because I haven't done the personas, as Andres is talking about, and done separate analyses on that group. I may not even sample enough because I'll say things like, oh, we sampled 1,000 people. Well, of that 1,000, probably only 100 or less actually fall into the category you have, that you care most about, that have 50% of your business. That is a terrible strategy. You need to make sure it's not just a large sample, but the sample is representative of how your business revenue comes to you. Because if you don't do that, you'll always weight it to the customer who actually gives you the least because they actually represent the majority of your customers. That is not an excuse, by the way. I'm going to be very clear. It's not an excuse to ever treat anyone badly. Never treat anyone badly. Because if you do that, that actually becomes corrosive in your whole culture. Right? You have to treat everyone with love and respect. You know, that's, that's, that's our job as human beings. But you also have to recognize the unique demands that are going to be placed on you by your most high-value customers. And therefore, you need to understand what they're likely to be experiencing and how to mitigate their challenges because they're paying you to solve their problem. That's why they give you money. You're solving a problem they can't solve themselves. So you have to really understand what they're going through so that you can actually ask yourself the right question and say, how can I best solve these needs? The, the other thing I, I hear you talking about is, is uh, and it's something I believe, uh, I, I think we're very good at capturing the cognitive aspects of, of uh, something. We, we, we measure satisfaction and we measure performance and, and, and all of these are sort of people. Per stuff that I uh, perceive in some way or the other, but uh, you you were highlighting uh, the behavioral aspects uh, in, in your example on, on the airport and, and the the uh, roads. Uh, let, let me give another example though that's not like that at all. What people don't realize is that sensorial things that you actually can't cognitively talk about have a huge impact. 
just the smells. Smell actually affects whether you think someone's trustworthy or not, whether you're willing to pay more money for something. That's not a joke. There's a lot of research out there on it. The sound impacts you know, how food tastes. I know that sounds crazy. It's actually true. How are you going to actually, if you, suppose you're in, a, in an environment, well, you could be in a shoe store, right? The smell actually makes a difference, believe it or not. Or you can be in a car dealership. The smell actually makes a difference. How are you gonna measure that? And you can't say, ask somebody, well, how was the smell for you? They don't even notice it, right? They might think it's pleasant, but the reality is it becomes a part of the background of the environment, yet it becomes mission critical for you to do this well. How do you do that? Well, you're gonna to have to experiment for, for one thing, right? You actually have to, to say, okay, I'm gonna test different things and see how people behave in, you know, where everything else is basically the same. Because some aspects of the customer experience you know, are, are, are affecting our primitive part of our brain, right? Not the cognitive part, not the logical part. And by the way, we default to, you know, if you believe all the pieces in behavioral economics, your brain actually defaults more to the kind of, here's how things work. Here's how things work, I just follow patterns, right? I don't bring the cognitive piece in until I actually have a challenge that I go, wait a second, does that make sense? Do I? So most of us are running on basic patterns. Why? Because they work for us 90% of the time. For you to make that work for you, you actually have to understand all of those experiences. What is it that's really going to work for you? It's not an accident that they have somebody making sweet sm smells when you walk into the department store, maybe even have you know, uh, a, uh, a place selling baked goods, right? Or coffees or whatever. That's not an accident. That's to set the mood for you. But there are other things that were places where that doesn't make sense. A shoe store doesn't make sense like that. You still have to think about how am I going to make all of those ambient conditions, we call them. How are we gonna make those ambient conditions work for you, right? How are we going to make the right, even the right color schemes work for you in this environment? I'll give you an example in the United States. Um, in the United States, we have two major chicken franchises, believe it or not, and you probably haven't heard of one of them. One's called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, they sell a chicken sandwich and their customers absolutely rave about them. They think they're one of the most innovative companies in the world. And they're innovative because they make a chicken sandwich, right? And they, but they figure out how to use technology to make it easy for you to buy. But they also do things that you don't see like in a fast food place. Little things that actually probably tend to ignore. Like you might have a set of flowers on all the tables. They're all clean. The food's always great. Let me get straight. You have to have a great product but everyone's trained to speak to you differently. No one says things like, not, no problem. And because the answer is, of course, it's not a problem. They always say, my pleasure. Silly little things like that, that everyone's trained to say, and everyone is trained to be overly nice while they're delivering you fast food. They sell three times more chicken than their nearest competitor. Kentucky Fried Chicken, the world famous chicken place. 
three times more chicken. You might think, well, okay, they sell three times more chicken with one third the number of locations. And they do it because they make all the ambient conditions right. The food is obviously great. I mean, it's fast food. Yes, you will die if you eat only fast food, sorry. But it tastes good. But they made a point of making sure there was no question about the quality of the product. And so once they got that over the way, out of the way, then they knew that they had to make these ambient conditions work. And when I talk about Chick-fil-A in my class, it's amazing. You know, I think that people are not going to care. That's the only chain that people kind of go nuts over in my class. I believe in everything they do. I'm like, it's a chicken place. I believe in everything they stand for. I'm all about them. And they do it by making sure that the customer gets a sense that they matter at all parts within, within the, uh, uh, when you, once you are in that uh, establishment. Now, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, isn't gonna just give up, right? But they recognize they had to change the ambient conditions. So what, what did they do? They said, okay, well, what, if, what do people actually care about when we were great? And what do they still care about? And it turned out that people still cared about the Colonel because the Colonel, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but this was one of the first franchises ever, first fast food franchises ever. Uh, he was known for being a stickler for quality. And he had kind of a legacy that people actually still associate Colonel Sanders quality. Now, the chain had lost that piece. What do they have to do? They put up a piece that they, they started changing the color schemes inside the stores. They re-kernelized, as they called it, the store. You saw the kernel everywhere. And you saw statements by the kernel that they say are going to apply now. Now, clearly, they had to make sure the product rose to the standard of their competition. But they recognized that if they didn't make the in-store experience better. They could never, ever compete against Chick-fil-A. And so that's where we are now. We see this great fight happening between these two chains, all focusing on trying to improve your experience in the store and doing it primarily through ambient conditions that are hard to measure, very hard to measure. Because if I brought Anders in here, and he's an expert, and I said, hey, we went into this KFC, we started eating the food, and I walked out, and I said, hey, Anders, what do you think of the smells and the sounds? Even if he just left, he's probably not going to be able to give me a good quantitative definition of what's going on. There I have to observe how customers are interacting with different design options. It becomes really important. Now, one of the things I try to do to help my students understand that you have to get out of your own head. How do, you how do you get out of your own head? Is to stop thinking about yourself and start asking yourself, what would I do if all my customers were this? And I start off with, we have, at St. John's, we have a, a, uh, an incredible basketball team. We're famous for having great basketball at St. John's. So I said, what would we do? How would we change? all the conditions of our experience if we had all of our customers the size of our basketball team, okay? And people can kind of picture that. They could picture themselves being six foot 10, 
right? Really tall. What, what wouldn't work for me, right? If I had a hotel and the shower's here all the time or whatever, the airline seats would probably change a lot. All of those things, right? That's easy. We can kind of figure that out. And then I say, okay, what would we do if all of our customers were elderly? How would we change things? Well, if we had a hotel, the bathtub would definitely change, right? You know, they'd be walk in, walk out. We'd have all kinds of things. We wouldn't have lots of staircases, would we? We'd make things much bigger print and easier to read. But the funny thing we, have, we don't realize is these are our customers now. Just not all of them. But we don't actually care about that because we've regressed to the average. And then I give them an example of what would you do if all your customers were deaf? And outside of having somebody who could do sign language, they have no idea. Yet, and then we, we, we go and I show a video of what it means to be deaf and how being deaf would change the way architecture is done if everyone was deaf. And not only that, it would be better for all of us if we actually listened to them. Because it's not, they're, they're not doing things that are so radical that you go, oh my God, it's like living on Mars. No, you think, wow, this would be great for everybody. Why aren't we just doing it? The problem we have is when we measure the customer experience as marketers, we still can't relate to our customer base the way we need to. And we talk about measuring, the first thing is to really really understand what your customer wants. Really understand how to make things work. So I love the, uh, with the deaf system. They would have very few staircases and mostly inclines and they'd be wider. Why? Because when you communicate, when you're deaf, you have to have space between you. Whereas Anders and I could literally be right next to each other and speaking to each other and you don't need any body cues to know what's going on. You need body cues to be able to read the movements of the person you're having a conversation with if you're deaf. We would change the way we structure our classrooms so that everyone could see each other. We would change the way we put color in because you don't want eye fatigue when eye, the eyes are the main sensorial input now. We would change the lighting. You would change the way you look into an office. Now, yes, you'd have shading, right? So that you could be, but you would know whether someone's in there or their lights on or whatever. All easy things to do. And all extraordinarily beautiful, by the way. We're talking, it would actually enhance the aesthetic experience for all of us. But we don't do it because we can't get out of our own way. If we want to be great marketers and want to be great at the customer experience, ask yourself, what would my marginalized groups need that would benefit everybody? That would be a really good start. And I hope that we do that and, and start recognizing that, yeah, this may be a small percentage of our customer base, but that small percentage can teach us how to be better at delivering the experience and providing better conditions for everyone. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox now. Oh, I, I agree. And I mean, I've been, I've been working with uh, some packaging and, and it's the same story there. Uh, 
what happens if you take into consideration that 10% has some defect in in their hand? Uh, well, you have to make the, the uh, packaging easier to open, and and no one would complain if if a package was easy to open. I mean, it's good for everyone. <laughs> exactly. That's a great example. It's a great example. We're all going to get old, and it's going to be hard to do some things, right? And that's okay. It's okay that it's hard to do these things. But we we should be a we should be companies that are actually prepared for our companies throughout their life cycle and the conditions that they go through. That should be our job. I I, I also know that you have uh, normally when we talk about customer experience, we we tend to focus more on the memorable aspects. Uh, but I know that you have been working on. Uh, research where, where you're talking about memorable and frictionless. Uh, and I, I think that that is a very good uh, good uh, sort of distinction there. But can you help us understand a bit better what you have done? Absolutely. Um, so what Anders is talking about now is when we talk about what kind of experience. Now, the pieces that I showed you earlier, the touch points, uh, the qualities that you know, and the uh, uh, context, all of that matters. Right? And it makes it much more complex. But right now, there's actually, a, believe it or not, there's kind of a fight about the most basic part, what kind of experience. The big, the big, you know, the big battleground right now is, is it going to be memorable or is it going to be effortless or what they call frictionless? And actually, there's a couple of books that actually popularize these things. One book is called The Power of Moments. It's by Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, they also wrote a best-selling book called Made to Stick. I mean, they're great writers, and and I believe Chip is a well, one of the Heath brothers here is a is a big professor in marketing, really great guy. Um, and the other argument is no, people actually don't want to think about you at all, right? They don't want to think about your firm at all. They just want to get through as painlessly as possible. And they have a thing called. Uh, they've had a book called The Effortless Experience, and they put out a piece called The Customer Effort Score uh, and saying, hey, how should it go? So the Customer Effort Score, or the Effortless Experience, again, no friction, and the Power of Moments is really all about memories. So let's first talk about friction, because that's actually the piece that, believe it or not, has gained the most traction. Even though in our world, in the academic world, we talk about memorable experiences, in the business world, everybody's running to frictionless. Why? Because they have an easy measurement tool called the customer effort score. How hard was it, right? And so when you make it easy for people to measure, everybody does it. And so you'll, if you go online and talk about frictionless CX or frictionless customer experience, you'll get a ton of things on Google, right? And they'll say, frictionless experiences are the best experiences, you know? And, Here's a complete guide and whatever you need to do it. And there is some truth to this. I shouldn't say some truth. There's a lot of truth to this, right? There's sometimes that it makes absolutely no sense what companies put us through, right? If you've ever called and been on hold for 40 minutes or you had to fill out numerous forms to give the same information, right? Or wait an extremely long time when they told you, oh, it'll just be five minutes. We all know what this feels like. That's unacceptable. But I want to be clear that the, the only scientific research that's out there on the customer effort score finds that it's not really a, a great 
thing in terms of predicting your repurchase behavior. Okay. It, it may, it, and whether that's uh, going to prove to be robust in the future, right now we're not seeing a piece. And that's put out by some professors that, that uh, uh, we know very well, right? So, uh, but they say, mm, not, so, not so great. So, I, but we can all agree, we can all agree that friction is just in general bad, right? People don't like friction. You know, I want it to be as easy as possible when I go into the supermarket and out of the supermarket, or I go into the bank and out of the bank. But the question is really, is it always true that friction is bad? And that's the first question you have to ask yourself. Is it always true? Because, because if, you don't, if, if it isn't always true, then we need to understand when it works and when it doesn't. So I wanna give you an example here. I live in New York and it used to be, and it probably still is, Really hard to get a ticket to see Hamilton on Broadway. Really expensive, too. Turns out, though, if everybody could get in, people would probably enjoy it less. That's how it works. Or think about some sort of excursion vacation. I know Anders likes to go out and show pictures of him on top of mountains, and I'm like, I'm not coming with you, Anders. You know, I, I'm willing to be flown in and dropped there, but I'm not coming with you. And it's not because I don't like the exercise. Anders knows I like the exercise, but I also don't like to die. And I picture dying whenever I'm going to go up these mountains. So, but people who really do love that, the thrill isn't just getting to the top, isn't just being on top, it's getting to the top. And I don't want to speak for your Anders, but I've got to say that the effort probably plays a role in your enjoyment. It does. I mean, and I'm also silly. I, I actually go into the lake in the winter as well. So it's sort of... Uh, oh, it, Jesus. That's, that's not friction. I don't know what is. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. See, Anders is a, a little bit more insane than I am, and I thought I was completely insane. I would... Good for you. Um, it makes no, you feel alive. That's the thing. I, can, I complain when the, when the weather hits freezing or zero Celsius. For me, it's like, I need to move to the Cayman Islands. I always tell my wife, I want to live in the Cayman Islands. I want to school in the Cayman Islands. I don't want to experience any of this. But it's, uh, it hasn't worked out for me yet. I'm in New York. We get plenty of snow and plenty of cold air and whatever. But I, I couldn't deal with the uh, cold swim. I'm sorry, Andres. I'm not joining you there either. But here's what I am willing to do. If you are at a, uh, at a resort, I will meet you in like the hot tub or whatever where it's warm and I'll have a cup of hot cocoa waiting for you when, we, when you come back. Because there's no, <laughs> anyway. It makes you feel like that's the thing, sort of. Actually, 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 it would make me feel like I'm coming close to seeing God. <laughs> but, but it's all good. There's another place. And, you, and, and I have never eaten here. It's the Damon Burrell restaurant. And I know that Anders hasn't eaten here either. It's in New York, but not in New York City. It's actually one of the most exclusive restaurants in the world. Um, the, the restaurateur has, makes dishes that are truly out of like natural settings. Like you will go out in the wild and pick stuff. And, and it's all seasonal work. If you want to eat at this restaurant, and it's always full, if you want to eat at this restaurant, you have a 10-year wait list. 
10 years. In fact, it was so full that for, I believe, two years, he wouldn't accept any reservations until he cleared his backlog. 10 plus years, and probably most of you are saying, I would never eat there for 10 years, wait 10 years to go to a restaurant, no matter how great it is. But it turns out that that wait and being able to ultimately get in enhances the experience. And I love this. This was an actual uh, Instagram post a person put up. He had pictures of his time at the restaurant. And what did he say? I feel so grateful that I got to eat here this week. Considering how difficult the reservations are to get, I feel very lucky. I feel lucky. I feel lucky for having to wait. Let me give you another example. And it's gonna, it's gonna ring close to home. Ikea. I love Ikea. It took me a while to love Ikea. And it's not because I didn't love the store. I mean, the, 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 the stuff. I have Ikea stuff throughout my house. My, my children's beds are made at Ikea. My son wants everything made at Ikea. He used to demand that we go there every week so he could eat at the restaurant, wander around and try to pick things for the house. He wanted to make sure that he had his Ikea uh, pictures in his room. It had to come from Ikea because Ikea is the best. And there's a lot of agreement with that. But, I mean, but one of the things about me that I've discovered is that I have kind of a claustrophobic sense of having to know where the exit is. I have to know where the exit is. When I used to get on a plane, the first thing I would do is figure out where the exits are, and I would count the number of seats from where I'm sitting to the nearest exit, as if I'm gonna get off the plane if it crashes. But I wanted to know how I'm getting out. But Ikea doesn't really work like that, right? Ikea, when you go in, I always feel like I'm in a maze and at any moment it's going to become the squid game and I can't get out. And it took me forever to get over that phobia of how would I get out of here if there was a fire? I know that they have really good ways to do that. Please don't, don't send me letters. But I still had that feeling. And whereas my wife and my youngest son, they could go into an Ikea and they could be there all day. They absolutely love it. They want to bring home the frozen food. This is not a joke. Um, and it's just a great time. And I would go in there going, how do I get the hell out of here if anything goes wrong? And I'm the dad, but I've got to protect my family. It's, I've kind of gotten used to it now. But they don't make the experience easy. Well, you might think it's easy. Yeah, you can pick stuff up and take it home, but they don't make the shopping experience easy intentionally because they want you to be immersed in the experience, even if it is to buy furniture that's not the most expensive, right? There's all kinds of places to get more expensive furniture, but they want you to go through and kind of picture yourself in these different environments. And once you set yourself up that that's what the goal is, then it becomes, you know, um, then it becomes kind of a Disneyland for furniture. Even though their experience is far from frictionless in terms of going through the store, IKEA is consistently recognized as one of the most innovative and socially innovative companies in the world. 
And, the, and I say this, what you're looking at, or you can't see this if you're just listening, I'm showing you a, a picture of the top 20 winners, both in uh, commercial innovation and social innovation as measured by the American Innovation Index, which is what measures customers' perceptions of the innovativeness of companies. And if you were to do this with the Norwegian index, it comes out exactly the same. And I don't know what the Swedish index looks like, if there is one yet. It is same. It, yeah, <laughs> it's basically the same, right? IKEA consistently wins. Why? Because their customer base understands what they're getting into. They like it. They're immersed by it. They also value the way they, they use this environment to help them perform better, right? It makes your living experience better. And so the funny thing is, there's actually a website out there that says, that uses IKEA as the example, that an effortless experience is the wrong strategy. <laughs> I thought that was great, right? Proof positive, because all I need is to show you a company that doesn't give you an effortless experience to prove that you're wrong. And so the question really is who's right? And as Anders talked about, we have a paper that, that was in the Journal of Retailing and Consumer Services that talked about this uh, and saw that there's kind of this, you know, both memorable and frictionless experiences can have significant positive impacts. But we saw this interaction effect, uh, effect that suggests that attempts to maximize both a memorable and frictionless experience actually will start to have diminishing returns. What does that really mean? Well, we put out, we did some more work and we uh, got some more research, more data to research on to see what is it that makes, what's the right strategy for a customer experience, uh, frictionless or effortless. And what we found is that very few brands are successful at being both. Right? And really, you have to decide what kind of brand you are and choose among one of four basic strategies that will impact whether you're memorable or frictionless. Because there is this kind of experience gains frontier. And it turns out the more memorable you are, you know, if you were just to look at it and say, well, this is a, a, a chain that says, where am I going? It would say the more memorable I am, the lower my market share is going to be. Because if you actually just ran the numbers and put everybody in, again, didn't segment, like we talked about the problem with individuals, it's also a problem with thinking about strategy that way. Because what it would say is everybody's got to be frictionless. Because if you're frictionless, market share goes up. But the question really begins is, you know, I use an example here. You know, with Pottery Barn, which is a very high-end uh, home goods store. And my wife loves Pottery Barn, and everything's ridiculously expensive. I mean, ridiculously expensive. I get a Pottery Barn bill on there, I know it's $1,500. And it's for a lamp, right? And, and, and Anders is shaking his head. That's actually not a joke. I got a $1,700 bill for a chandelier that's over my, not, not over my main dining table, but for the breakfast table, because my wife thought that was pretty. And that's fine. It makes the house beautiful, and I'm fine with that. But I'm like, it's a light, right? Yeah. And Pottery Barn isn't going to gain more customers by becoming more frictionless and becoming a Walmart where I can also get lamps. 
because the whole purpose of Pottery Barn is to actually immerse me in the experience. You go in, they make sure the smells are right. You can, you know, if you ask for something to drink, they would actually bring it to you, right? Like, oh, would you like some warm tea or something? Right, I'm, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's just a different vibe, a different environment. And you go in and you understand it's expensive because walking in the store, we all have that experience, right? We've all walked into stores where immediately when we walk in the store, we know it's expensive, right? That should tell you ambient conditions matter a whole lot because nobody's told you anything. You just walk in and go, I smell, this is costly, right? It smells costly, not just the scent, right? But everything about it, how it's presented. And it's also possible to be memorable, like, you know, uh, Walt Disney or whatever, Lego or whatever. And, but we don't have a whole bunch of brands there. So what is it that we do? What is it that makes this happen? Well, we looked and we said, okay, let's just divide, let's just divide customers, uh, brands up, I should say, between their market share and whether they're more frictionless or memorable based on customers' statements about them. Okay. And we found that was four, four different uh, categories. You could be a mass market brand, which meant you were very frictionless and had a super high market share. Think Amazon, right? Amazon is super frictionless, super high market share. But most mass market brands play to the frictionless side. Then we have convenience brands that are right below them that tend to play on the frictionless space, right? You go in because they're convenient. At the same time, they have to be somewhat different than the mass market brand in the sense of how you interact, where there's no reason to go to them because you could get everything you really want at a uh, mass market brand. Then we have the boutique brands. Think of the Pottery Barn I just talked about. But we also have these big brands, think Disney, these what we call gravity brands, because there actually isn't a good term for them. There isn't a good term for uh, large brands that are also memorable. So if you're a mass market brand, what we found is your goal is to make the experience as frictionless as possible. You need to make sure that it's as easy as possible. You're a mass market brand. And you're gonna get more people just because you can get them in and out the door quicker easier, they get what they want, they leave. If you're a convenience brand, and we used an example of, a, one of the examples here we have is a, is a convenience store called Wawa, and they have raving fans, right? They're, but you can go in, it's kind of like a 7-Eleven or something like that. Uh, it, but in the US, uh, it has, it's considered a little more high tech, right? Here you can have a more balanced CX strategy. You can have a more balanced strategy between frictionless and memorable, but, you're, but your share of wallet is being won on your frictionless qualities. If you, you know, people aren't coming in there to have long conversations. People aren't coming in there to kind of just breathe in the store. So yes, you need to be, uh, have more memorable aspects to the store, but understand that you win because you're convenient. And so therefore you have to be more frictionless. On these boutique brands, you compete primarily on memorability. And that means that to do that, 
It's going to be enhanced by well-planned, immersive customer journeys. And that's what we like to talk a lot about when we talk about CX. But we have to remember there's different things we need. I don't need a memorable gas station experience. I need a frictionless gas station experience. So knowing the brand we're in, or the type of brand we are, that's how it plays. And most of the truly memorable places, resort hotels and things like that, or uh, high-end stores or, or, that are, or something that's designed to kind of have an immersive piece or uh, a high-end restaurant, these are boutique brands. They compete primarily because they are so different than the frictionless convenience type work. The last, these, these gravity brands, which tend to be rare. Ikea is, you know, think of who Ikea's competitors are and they don't look anything like Ikea. Right, they're either convenient or they're a boutique. And IKEA is unique, but it's in this position where it can compete uniquely because it, it can't support a large number of players doing it. And this really requires a lot of superior training, a lot of high quality experience components being put in there, and frequently an enhanced physical environment. You know, where you're really making sure that that, that environment that they're in forces them to be immersed, even though oh, no, force is the wrong word, but naturally causes them to be immersed. And, you know, so how do you gain share of wallet when competitors exist in other parts of the matrix? That's really important to understand because everyone thinks that they're going to be that same brand. And, I'll, and I go back to a, a thing that, uh, forgive me for kind of pushing the wallet allocation rule, Anders, but I go back to thinking in terms of everything needs to put in, be put in competitive context when you're ultimately evaluating the customer experience you want to provide to maximize the share you can get. And so, you know, the wallet allocation formula, you don't need to really know here, but you need to understand that everything is about how you rank vis-a-vis -vis the competition you have. And so you can't always give, you know, you can't be the same thing that other brands are. So I use the example for, uh, uh, in the United States, we have brands that seem very similar to each other, but they aren't. They're similar in the products they offer, but the way they deliver them and what their purpose is is very different. We have an example that we use uh, to kind of point out how similar you can really be and still be very, very different in the customer's mind. We have traditional retail banks, just like you have in, um, in Sweden and in Scandinavia in general or anywhere in the, in the developed world. And then we have credit unions. And in the United States, a credit union is a nonprofit organization. And they exist to serve uh, what they call members because the members technically own, if you put a deposit in or whatever, you become a member. Uh, and you technically own that uh, credit union, and they exist to serve members that have some sort of common grouping. So the to give you an example, the largest credit union in the United States is Navy Federal Credit Union. And they serve, obviously, military, right? Started serving Navy, uh, but they serve military families who have common needs. You, if you go to them, you can always get a checking account. 
you can get a bank, you know, you can get savings accounts, you can get almost all the same products from a bank or a credit union. Now, the thing is, credit unions, if, even though the, lar the largest credit union is quite large, if you rolled all credit unions together, all of them, and we have like 4,000 credit unions in this, if you rolled them all and made them one financial institution, the entire market share of one of those wouldn't be large enough to put it in one of the top five banks. That's pretty incredible. The other thing to note is the customer experience scores are always much, 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 much higher for credit unions than they are for the top five banks. Why is that? Well, the credit union, also the credit union doesn't charge any fees, no fees. They pay you higher interest on your deposits and charge you lower interest rates on your loans. So you would think, well, these are the main functions of a bank, right? And I would go to the one that pays me the highest interest rate, charges me the lowest fees, and charges me the lowest rates on my loans. Why wouldn't I, why doesn't everybody just use them all the time? Well, the reason people go to a credit union is the common, they have an affinity with the brand, and they, they can get low fee services, which lower fee services, which they should, they're nonprofits, they exist primarily, for that reason, to provide lower cost services. But most of the people that are members of a credit union also have a bank relationship. Why do they have a bank relationship? They have a bank relationship because banks tend to be larger, have much better infrastructure. So they provide a much better customer experience when they need the online aspects or the convenience aspects of getting their money. You know, ATMs are right there with them. I can bank online. I can do all kinds of cool stuff online. Try functioning in the 21st century without that. Whereas a smaller credit union can't compete effectively on that. And so the question then becomes, when, the, when you, you know, how would a credit union gain share from a bank? Well, a credit union can gain share only by incorporating things that still fit within its its mission and the vision that it provides. It's not going to ever be able to win by being a bank, even though it provides the same services. What it needs to do is look for people who are using higher fee services at a bank and say, look, you know, we can make it easier for you, right? Why, why spend an extra $2,000 over the life of your loan when you can do this here, we can consolidate that for you. Or when they offer a credit card, they're not gonna be able to offer all the perks of a credit card, but they can offer a much lower fee structure for them and say, look, you know, you're a revolving credit card user. You don't pay your balance off at the end of the month. Let me show you why this works. It's about understanding who you are. And how can they win with them? They can win with them because they build a trust relationship that's different than the banking relationship. The banking relationship tends to be more transactional. The, the credit union tends to be more memorable. When you're gonna compete, you need to know where you rank and to make sure that the benefits of what you're offering and your experience outweigh 
the, the benefits or, uh, of the competitor. Because if you don't, uh, don't reduce customers' need to use a competition, you're going to always lose in this one. Anyway, I've spent a long time talking. but no, Thank you so much. And, and uh, I think it's sort of time to, to end the, the podcast. Uh, and, and thank okay. you so much, Tim. It's been uh, very informative. Uh, you, 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 <laughs> in my mind, you're a tr true leader in this field. So thank you so much for, for uh, doing this for us. Well, Anders, let me let me just say something to your students because your students probably don't actually look up and say, "Who is Anders?" Uh, Anders is a real leader in our space. I've looked up to Anders uh, for two decades now, uh, and not only that, your professor is one of the nicest people on the planet. Um, I really, uh, I really value our friendship, and you know, I hope that you recognize and. Uh, I know it's hard when you're a student, but how lucky you are to have somebody who is committed to uh, your success, also into uh, making businesses just, you know, treat people better. You know, it's it's um, it's a it's a real pleasure to have been able to know Anders and be, call him my friend. And yeah. I hope that you I hope that you take advantage of this. And what I always tell my students is. Once you're my student, you're mine for life. You know, stay in touch with me. If you have questions, reach out to me. I take it very seriously. I'm going to speak for Anders here and say, I hope you'll do the same with Anders because it's a real, uh, rarely are you gonna find someone as committed to doing, doing well by doing good. And that really is what Anders stands for. You're really too kind, but but uh, I am actually meeting some of my old students in, in in just a bit. So you're right that I keep in touch with my students. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and I really do hope this helps. If any of your students have questions of me, just please give them my email and send a thing that just says they were in your class, and I'll and I'll respond to them. Thank I you. Promise.